Our scripture this morning is taken from Acts 26, verses 2 through 23. It's the NIV, the, the book in front of you, where we have our Connect cards that you can fill out. You'll find the NIV Bible. If you have a regular print, it will be on 1172 and the large print on 1739. This, this reading that is following is Paul's defense when he stood on trial before King Agrippa, his defense. Let's join together. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I, might, as I make my defense against all the accusers of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why? Do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I ask, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, Then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea 
and to the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. May God bless the reading of his word and as our pastor comes to deliver his word to us. you didn't get your coffee this morning, you should be good to go now. I only had one cup, so I needed something. You know, the, Jesus once said that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was kind of like this. He said a man was out in the field and he found a treasure, an incredible treasure hidden there. And he hid it back again went and sold everything that he had so that he could afford to purchase that field and the treasure it contained. I was thinking about that this week and it made me think of a couple of TV shows. And I want to play you their intros today. The first one, we'll see how long it, it takes you to catch on. Here's the first Listen to my story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food, and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil, that is, black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. The kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. Said, California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is, swimming pools, movie stars. The Beverly Hillbillies. Now, some of you know all the words by heart, don't you? <laughs> Pretty sure I heard some people sing along, even had the, the speaking part down, you know. Um, you know, in this case, guy literally found a treasure in his field, right? <laughs> Lucky for him, he already owned it. Uh, but it changed everything for him. You know, imagine how the story would have been different if old Jed had walked out there and and saw that and said, ah, and just went back home, never mentioned it again, life never changed. You wouldn't have a TV show, would you? 
here's another one, a more modern show, uh, less quality to be sure, but. Uh, <laughs> this is the wild factor. I'm not intimidated by any buyers. Cash is king, winner takes all. You don't know what you're going to win now. Storage Wars. How many of you have seen that? <laughs> wow. Whew. That. Uh, <laughs> well, this, you know, in case you haven't, this reality TV show, as uh, so many are not really reality, are they? But uh, this particular one, the, the concept is that these guys get a few minutes to look at some storage units that are going up for sale you know supposedly people have defaulted on their payments and so now it's up for auction and so they can bid on the whole thing and they can kind of walk in and look around a little bit but you know not supposed to mess with things too much and then they get to bid on how much they think it's worth and how much money they can get out of it if they sold the stuff piecemeal that kind of thing and uh, so that's kind of the premise and I was thinking you know in, in line with Jesus' story, believe it or not, we're going to try to make a connection here between storage wars and Jesus. But, um, you know, if you walked, if you were on that show and, and you walked into a storage unit and you happened to see something in there that you happened to have specific knowledge about and you knew that that item was worth more than anything you possessed, all of it combined, well, then what wouldn't you get rid of trying to buy that thing, <laughs> right? trying to get that storage unit to be yours. Uh, you would be bidding it up. So we all kind of, the reason that shows, ridiculous shows like that, can we just all agree on that? I'm sorry if it's your favorite show. But it's, the reason shows like that, you know, make it and are so popular is because we all kind of on some level have that dream, don't we? Of Wow, you know, what if, we, and that's why the lottery is so popular. That's why, you know, shows like this are popular. That's why the Beverly Hillbillies are popular to a degree. I mean, yeah, they're funny, but, but also kind of all of us think, wow, wouldn't it be neat if, if just oil started popping up on the, in my backyard, you know? Uh, wouldn't it be neat if I found that treasure, that hidden gem that no one else saw at the storage wars, and I saw it, and then I sold it, and now we're moving to Beverly Hills or wherever it is you want to move. Apparently in Farmerville they're building huge houses. So wherever it is you, you like to uh, you'd like to go. But we all have that dream of wow, what if we found this incredible treasure? It would change everything. And yet I'd suggest to you that people every day, lots of people pass by an unsurpassed life-altering treasure and don't even realize it. Are you in that boat today to some degree? That's what we're going to explore. We're in a, a series called Let There Be Light. And we've been exploring this great metaphor. One of the great metaphors of all time, of all humanity, people of all ages, from the dawn of humanity to now, have all understood that light and dark you know, they've always been used as more than just, hey, it's light outside, hey, it's dark outside. 
Because we understand that in, in light, we're a little safer. In dark, we're a little more vulnerable. We, unlike some animal species, we don't see better at night than in the day, right? We, when it gets dark, we can't see that well. And so, maybe because of that, in part, it's always kind of meant that. The good guys wear light colors, the bad guys wear dark colors. You know, the, it can go on and on. Like we talked about the, in a wedding, the bride wears white and they make the groom wear black, all right? But uh, we all understand this metaphor. And maybe that's why God chose to use it throughout Scripture from the first pages to the last pages over and over again in a hundred different ways to try and to explain to us spiritual truths that we might not otherwise grasp. And so he gives us symbols and metaphors and parables and stories to help us understand. And light and dark, it's one of the big ones. In the first week of this series, we talked about how when we face times of darkness, we should remember that our God is the God who said, let there be light. There's always hope when you're serving our God. And then last week, we talked about how Jesus said, I am the light. And we said in order to leave a meaningless light, life of darkness for a fulfilling life of light, we should start living for the one who is the light. Jesus. And this week, we, we read this incredible account from the Apostle Paul himself of his own conversion, of um, how he came to do a complete transformation in his life, a complete 180, all because he saw the light. And, and we kind of are just, our hope in this message is that we'll kind of see the light. Maybe for the first time, maybe for just another time. We need a reminder. And this setting, this event that we read about, this trial in which Paul is giving his defense, happened about 20 to 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. And Paul had been living a long time as a missionary, as a person who carried the gospel to both Jews and to Gentiles, Jews and to Greeks, uh, all around the Roman Empire, which was the empire at that time. And so, because this event in time took place so long ago and so far away from here, I think it would do well for us to back up a little bit and get a little bit of perspective and context for where and how and why this took place and who these people are that it talks about. Now the book of Acts comes right after the four Gospels in our Bible. And we've been talking about the Gospels, how they're an account. They're accounts of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death and his resurrection. And the book of Acts picks up where they left off. And it picks up where you know, Jesus' disciples, they see Jesus ascend into heaven. They wait to receive the Holy Spirit. And when his Holy Spirit comes on them. Then they begin the church. What we now call the church. They, they begin God's people. They begin spreading the gospel in powerful ways. They put their lives on the line again and again. For the news about this Jesus. And the church grows. And the church spreads. And much of the book of Acts deals with 
Paul and his missionary journeys and people who accompanied him on his missionary journeys. And here, towards the end of the book of Acts, we read this account of Paul being on trial in Jerusalem. And the first character that we come across, the first person that we come across in here, his name is Agrippa. It's the best we can do for a picture. This is off of some kind of coin that was minted with his face on it. And Agrippa, his full title was actually Herod Agrippa II. And he was about the seventh in a line of a bunch of Herods that reigned in, in, the, in Jerusalem and in Judea. They were called kings of the Jews. And you say, well, wait a second, I thought Rome was in control. Well, they were, but Rome liked to find somebody local to kind of run things for them and kind of keep the peace with the people. And so the Herods, their family had become Jews, sort of converted to Judaism. They weren't born Jews, but they had converted to Judaism years in the years past and had risen to power kind of anyway. So Rome just took advantage of them and dubbed them the king of the Jews. And it all started, actually, with Herod the Great, who is Agrippa's great-grandfather. And Herod the Great, and this whole bunch of Herods, really, these are the kind of guys that give royal bloodlines a bad name. You know, you, you hear about how corrupt you know, kings and, and kingdoms would become back in the olden days, and these guys were living proof. And it started with this guy, Herod the Great. He was known for building lots of buildings and beautifying Israel. And, I mean, he expanded the temple, made it beautiful. But on the other hand, he was known for just being maniacal and evil and corrupt and perverse. And, I mean, the guy would do anything to hold on to his power, including killing his own family. Uh, The Herods became known for incest and all sorts of just ugly, despicable things that, like I say, give all royal bloodlines kind of a bad name. You know, when we talk about uh, medieval history and all that and how corrupt kings and their bloodlines would become. and, And these guys were about as rough as it got. So when Paul said to Agrippa... You know, I'm glad I'm standing before you because you are well acquainted with all of our controversies amongst the Jews, with all of the you know, current events and everything that, you know, all the, the complexities, the customs, the controversies. You're familiar with it. And these other Roman guys I've been talking to before, they're not familiar with it. Well, he was telling the truth because these guys, their family had been reigning for about 100 years. And they were in the thick of all the controversies. In fact, they probably caused their fair share of the controversies that surrounded Judaism at this time. So, the next character is Paul himself. And if you didn't already know something about the Apostle Paul, he told you a lot in that scripture passage we just read about his conversion to faith, how he had once uh, tormented and persecuted the church, and suddenly... He became its greatest champion. And he shared why that happened. Something else, just background information that perhaps would serve us well to know today about Paul is that he was born in Tarsus. That may not mean much to us today, but Tarsus is located in modern day Turkey. And that day it was the Roman province of Cilicia. And it was a great 
famous city. It was the capital city of Cilicia. It was also, you've maybe heard of Cleopatra, maybe you saw the movie, all right? Well, Mark Antony and Cleopatra first met in Tarsus, probably about 30 years or so before Paul was born. But this is a famous city. It's a Roman free city. And apparently the citizens who were born in Tarsus got automatic Roman citizenship, which was the citizenship of that day. I mean, you wanted to be a Roman citizen because they had all the rights, they had all the privileges. And to be born a Roman citizen was as good as it got. Some people would buy their Roman citizenship, but of course, they were kind of second rate to the people who were born with it. And Paul being born in Tarsus meant that not only was he a Jew, not only was he a Jew of the Jews in a sense, because he followed the law very strictly as a Pharisee, but he was also at the same time a Roman citizen. And this placed him ideally in a place to be able to be the church's greatest champion and missionary both to the Jews and to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. And he always had that I'm a Roman citizen card he could play if he got into too tight of a spot. And this was one of those tight spots. He had been doing his missionary journeys, but he felt God wanted him to go back to Jerusalem. And his friends were all worried about it. They said, Paul, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to want you, they're going to want you dead. But he felt like that's where God wanted him to go, and he went, and sure enough, the Jews turned on him. And he would be, he would have been as dead as a doornail before this event we read about today ever happened, had it not been for God's grace and for his Roman citizenship. But, because of that, he was able to stay alive and to continue giving his testimony of what God had done in his life to people both lowly and as high as a king. When he came, the Jews turned on him because, first of all, he was preaching Jesus and the Jews were against Jesus. They saw it as blasphemy, as heresy, as false religion. And second of all, Paul chummed around with Greeks. So that was two taboo things to the Jews. And so therefore, Paul had to go. And they fought tooth and nail to get him to go. Now the first person that the Jews brought him to was the Roman procurator, Felix. Everybody got their face on a coin back then. If you were, if you were cool, you were on a coin. And Felix had a similar job to what Pontius Pilate's job was. The, the, the job title had kind of shifted, but we know how that goes in our world, right? You're the vice president of this, and then you're this, and their titles change all the time. But really, it's just a fancy title for the same kind of thing. But he was the Roman procurator, and he didn't know what to do with Paul, and so he just kind of kept putting off the decision, kept putting off the decision. And so Paul's sitting there in prison for two years. And then Felix was uh, succeeded by Festus. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> How many of you have seen Gunsmoke? <laughs> All right. So, wrong Festus, but this was pretty funny. So, uh, the... Uh, <laughs> who knows? They might have been identical twins in years gone by. 
just hard to say. But the next Roman procurator, Felix, he comes and he hears Festus. He hears Paul's story. And Paul, by this time being sick of being just stuck in a prison for two years, he appeals to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And he would eventually be transferred to Rome to await trial there. But in the meantime, while Festus still had him, King Agrippa came to town with his sister and probably also lover, Bernice. I told you these people were messed up. Wasn't lying. So, him and his sister come to town, and Festus says, Hey, Agrippa, I got someone and a story I think you'd appreciate and like to hear. We'll call Paul in. We'll have him kind of stand on trial before you again. And that's how we get to where we are with this story. It's a lot of background information. Thanks for sticking with me. But I want you to realize that we're talking about real flesh and blood people in a real situation, in a real trial. That we're talking about real corruption and real injustice, real controversies. And we're talking about a real man in Paul standing before a real king, Agrippa, putting his life on the line for a real Jesus who really died and really rose again. Otherwise, why in the world would all these guys be putting their life on the line like this? You've got to realize this is just 20 to 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. Eyewitnesses to it are still alive and well. Paul's not just making this stuff up. He's telling his story. And he's on trial. And in this trial, he says, gives Agrippa some background. And then he tells him, you know, how he changed so dramatically. How he saw the light. He says in verse 13 of what we read, that about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions, and we all fell to the ground. It was so bright. Paul saw the light. He goes on to say, as we read, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And that is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Paul saw the light, and he did exactly what he would then go on to preach. And he said it right there. He said... The message that he preached is that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Paul had done that. He had repented. He had been on his way to persecute, probably put to death, more believers in this way, in this Jesus Christ. And suddenly he saw this light and everything changed for him. He repented, and he proved his repentance by his deeds, and he was a different man from that day going forth. 
And that was the message that he took everywhere he went. That, hey, this is my experience, and it should be your experience, because the light of the world is real. I've seen it with my own eyes. Repent. Turn from your old way. Turn to God. Prove your repentance by your deeds. This word repent, what does it mean? It means basically to do a 180. You were going that way, now you're going this way. It involves a little, uh, some sorrow for, hey, I've been going the wrong way and now I realize that God and I'm so sorry. And I want to go your way. Repent. In, 17, in verses 17 and 18 of what we read, that pretty much defines it. He says, and this is actually uh, Jesus speaking to Paul. He says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to turn them. That is what repentance looks like. That's what happened to Paul, and that was his mission. And I want to suggest to you today that once you've seen the light, you can't just go on living in darkness. Why would you? And once you've accepted who Jesus is, then you can't continue as you were. Once you've seen the light, you can't go on living in darkness. And once you've accepted who Jesus is, you really can't go on living life as you were. If you fill out the blanks on your card, that's them. Such is the nature of a true faith encounter with Christ. It leaves you changed completely. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus, the light of the world, is still just as bright as he ever was. And when you accept who he is, it has to change everything. Has he changed everything for you? Where do you find yourself today? Do you find yourself in need of repentance? Do you need to repent? To turn from darkness to light? From the power of Satan to God? Or have you repented before, but it's time to do it again? (laughs) Because somewhere or another you got off track. Or, do you need today, maybe perhaps you've repented recently or in some time past, but it's time now to prove your repentance with your deeds. As Paul said it. Because talk is cheap, isn't it? 
we can say that we've repented, but until we prove it with our deeds, it doesn't look very genuine. So perhaps that's why Paul worded it that way. He didn't just leave it at repent, but he said, and prove their repentance with their deeds. Now, deeds aren't what saves us. Even though that's really a popular notion in our world today, right? Uh, you know, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. I think that's probably the common consensus in our culture. And, you know, if, if when they die, most people have warm fuzzies about who they were, then they were a good person. And if most people think, oh, that scumbag, then they're probably in trouble, <laughs> you know. And it's deeds-based. But Scripture teaches that true salvation, being saved, your eternal destination is determined not by your deeds, but by your faith. And where do you put your faith? And do you put your faith in this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to live your life for yourself? And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then prove it by how you live your life. Another question I'd have for you is, have you been baptized? If you've turned from your old way of life to God, then the next step is, undisputably, baptism. It's more than just a religious rite or something that the church does uh, for kicks or take a bath. It's so much more than that. It's something that Jesus himself initiated and the church has done from its earliest days. It's significant in the life of the believer because of what it represents. That we are buried with Christ in his death. And we, in that death, we die to our old selves and to our old way of living. And when we're raised up out of the water, we are raised into newness of life, his life, his way of life. It's the ultimate act of repentance, baptism, where we declare openly, publicly, that we're dead to our old way, We've turned to his way. If you've never been baptized, if you've just repented or realizing now that, man, it's time to start proving my deeds by how I'm living and you want to be baptized, talk to me today. Don't wait around until you forget about it. Let's do it. Now, why does God insist on this repentance thing why does he insist that we have to change why can't we just go on living our life the way that we had I think a lot of us just assume that God is kind of the policeman in the sky right the moral police and he just gets kicks by making us jump through all these hoops I believe that God's way is there because he knows the best way for us to live. And his way is more than just a set of rules. It's the set of rules in which our life can be most fulfilled. 
But if you doubt God's motives, look at what Jesus himself said to Paul. When he said that I'm going to send you, Paul, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they... Here's what he says why. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. In short, so that they can be forgiven and be restored to a right relationship with their Creator. It's not so I can be happy, though God is happy, when we choose to live His way and put our faith in Him. But His desire is for all people to come to a right relationship with Him, to find forgiveness in Him and in the sacrifice that He Himself paid on our behalf. Many people in this room could stand up today and tell us, tell us, tell you, tell me who they were before they saw the light and who they've been since. Many of us have powerful stories of who we were and then who we are now by the grace of God. My own story would not sell very many books. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I used to think it pretty uninspiring. Because I grew up in a Christian home, multi-generation Christian home. And from an early age I was taught and trained how to live for God. Not that I always got it right, but I knew from an early age. And I wasn't one of those church kids that ended up going through the big rebellious phase uh, and then having to come back. So I don't have the, the really cool story that some people do have. And I used to kind of be ashamed of that to some degree. I don't know if any of you who might be in my same boat feel that way ever, but kind of like, man, I don't have that really cool story that I could tell someone. Uh, you know, I'd, I have a hard time sometimes identifying with people who are living the you know, so far off of the God map, if you will. But I came to a point where I realized the truth. And the truth was that I've faced enough darkness in my day to know who I would be without the grace of God. And I think that's somewhere where every one of us who's a Christian, no matter what our background is, no matter whether we lived a goody-two-shoe life, or we had a, a time where things got pretty rocky... We can all be honest enough to say, hey, I know the kind of darkness I'd be living in if it weren't for the grace of God. I was thinking of a story that I heard, a fictional story, of a woman who inherited a brooch. I hate that word because it looks like brooch, (laughs) but you're supposed to say brooch doesn't make any sense. One of those English words that makes you scratch your head. She inherited this brooch and she thought it was costume jewelry and she put it in her uh, drawer with her other costume jewelry. And one day though, years later, she got curious about it and she took it to a well-reputed jeweler just to have a look at it and see if there was anything more to it. And she takes it to him and he takes it and he sticks the little jeweler's glass in his eye and he's examining it and his hands begin to tremble. And that glass in his eye pops out. And his jaw drops as he realizes that this piece of jewelry is worth far more 
than all the jewelry in his store combined. Worth more than anything he's ever seen or heard of, it's priceless. And as he relays this to that woman, she thinks of the way that she's been living as though it was costume jewelry and how different she would have treated it, how different her life would have been had she realized all that time what was right there under her nose in her costume jewelry drawer. So in closing today, I just want to ask you, have you been treating this incredible treasure as though it were costume jewelry? Have you been treating the light of the world as if it was just another light? My prayer today is that you would see him for who he is. And that once you see the light, you won't be able to stay in the dark. And that once you've accepted who Jesus is, you won't be able to stay as you were. Let's pray together. God, if you're working on somebody's heart today, I pray you keep working even as we sing here in a minute. If someone needs to get right with you, God, I pray that you'd keep knocking on their door, the door of their heart. Help them to know you're right there listening, right there waiting for them to come to you and just say, God, forgive me for living life my way. I want to live life your way. I accept who you are, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and I want you to be my Savior. God, I've seen the light, and I want to be a different man, a different woman, a different teenager. Pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.